And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 will be in verses 2 to 13. And so Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Suffering precedes glory. If you were to have a conversation with an Olympic gold medalist, they would tell you that you don't get to the top apart from enduring pain along the way. Now, I'm no gold medalist, but I remember my freshman year of high school. I was on a track team. And at the first team meeting, the the track coach, Greg Williams, he showed us the state championship ring and trophy from the previous year. And he says that he wants to win another one. And he tells us that if we're going to win again, there will be difficult days ahead. He says practice will be excruciatingly painful. Many will throw up. Some will want to quit. But in the end, it will be worth it. And y'all, he was right. (laughs) So serious. Practice was extremely hard. Y'all, I threw up so many times, I lost count. But it was worth it. You see, I watched them win again. And in the end, it was all worth it. You see, the reality is suffering is an integral part of the process of glory. And that is what we will see in this morning's passage where we will get a glimpse of glory, and we will see that the fullness of it and the consummation of it will come after suffering. And so Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13, please stand for the reading of God's Word. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice from the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. You may be seated. You see, in our passage, we will learn two things that Christians must anticipate. First, We must anticipate glory with Christ or await glory with Christ. And second, we anticipate suffering for Christ. So two things that Christians must anticipate. 
We anticipate glory with Christ, and we anticipate suffering for Christ. Glory with Christ and suffering for Christ. Before glory with Christ, let me give us a quick runway into this passage. And so last week, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And afterwards, Jesus began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and resurrect from the dead. You see, Jesus, he predicted his own humiliation and exaltation. And then he tells the crowd that if they follow him, that they will suffer. But their lives will be saved. Then Jesus assures his glorious return and he promises judgment. He says that he will come in the glory of his Father. And this alludes to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, he promises that some present won't die until they witness the manifestation of his glory. You see, we will see in this morning's passage that like a movie trailer, three disciples will get an exclusive preview of the Son's future glory that he will have when he returns. They will see the Son's transcendent glory, and just as a movie trailer should excite us for the movie, so the transfiguration should have us yearn for Jesus' return. That's what we'll see. And so the first point, we should anticipate or await glory with Christ. Look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And so six days after Peter's confession and Jesus' teaching, Jesus takes his inner crew of three. They go on a trek. And this isn't the first trip together. You see, in chapter 5, Jesus took these same three with him as he went to heal Jairus' daughter. And in chapter 14, it'll be these very same three who will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, where did Jesus take them? It says he took them up a high mountain. You see, y'all, this is big. They're about to experience something bigger than what they could have imagined. And I say this because in the Old Testament, a high mountain was a common place of divine revelation. You see, in Exodus, the Lord appeared on a high mountain. God revealed himself to Moses through the glory cloud on Mount Sinai. And also in 1 Kings chapter 19, God revealed himself to Elijah on Mount Hermon. And this time, it will be no different. You see, on this high mountain, these three disciples will witness the glory of the Son of God. And that's what happened. Look on. He says, it, he was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderers on earth could whiten them. You see, Jesus transfigured before these disciples. The Greek word for transfigured means to change. His appearance visibly changed before their eyes, like transformers, robots disguised as vehicles who then change their appearance, and you see them for the robots that they actually are. Well, here at the Transfiguration, Jesus' outward appearance changed. This change came from within, and it's consistent with his nature. It's that because of who he is. You see, Jesus is not some ordinary person, but he is the Son of God. He is one person with two natures. 
He's truly God and truly man. And here, Jesus unveiled his transcendent glory. You see, this glory, it was brighter than what anyone has witnessed. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. His glory was so pervasive that it impacted his outfit. Y'all, his clothes became incomparably white. They were whiter than white. I don't even know how you get that white, but they were. You see, cleaners can't make clothes that white. The iciest Air Force Ones are seen as off-white in comparison to Jesus' glory. Y'all, this has never happened to anyone before. You see, Moses, after meeting with God, he reflected God's glory. But for Jesus, who is the Son of God, this glory came from within because he is the Son. He is the radiance of God's glory. And y'all, it gets even crazier. Look at verse 4. It says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. You see, the prophets, Moses and Elijah appeared, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, one may wonder, why Moses and Elijah? It could be a number of things. It could be that Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. And how both law and prophets points to and anticipates Jesus. It could also be because God revealed himself to both Moses and Elijah on high mountains. Or because Malachi chapter 4 verses 4 to 5 mentions both Moses and Elijah as the people anticipate the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, like last week, we see Peter not having one of his best moments. You see, he didn't grasp what was happening, and yet he spoke impulsively. He suggested to Jesus that they build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Theologians, they, have, they give a number of explanations for why he makes this suggestion, but Mark makes it clear. Verse 6, he said this because he didn't know what to say, <laughs> since they were terrified. There's the reason right there. <laughs> clearest day. And y'all, this should instruct us. You see, we should be slow to speak, especially regarding weighty matters where we have zero knowledge. Y'all, I will admit there have been a number of times when I looked like an idiot because I spoke instinctively on topics where I had no knowledge. It's really embarrassing and it's extremely humbling. You see, the wisest thing would be to cover your mouth. Say nothing. You see, in some situations, our silence actually demonstrates humility and maturity. Verse 6 says that they were terrified. They were frightened at the revelation of the sun's radiant glory. Struck with terror because the glory of the sun is overwhelming. And it's the case because such sight, it humbles us when we are confronted with the greatness of God's glory. Because when we're confronted with the greatness of God's glory, we're immediately confronted with the reality of our own sin and our insignificance. It's 
humbling. Such sight is terrifying. Now, y'all, if Jesus' disciples, if his own followers were terrified, how much more horrified will his enemies be when he returns in that glory? You see, he promises to return in glory. And when he does, he will condemn his enemies because they did not trust him for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, for when he returns for non-Christians, that glorious day will not be one that they await. It will not be an awaited day, but it will be an awful day. For they will experience the wrath of God for their very own sins. They'll be so fearful of the wrath of the Lamb that they will beg for mountains to fall on top of them. They will suffer the just penalty for their sins. It would be for an eternity. Not one moment of relief, but an eternity of misery. You see, the one who could have been their savior will be their judge. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you're here and you're a non-Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I don't share what I just shared to scare you, but to sober you. Because sin is infinitely offensive to a holy and just God, and He will judge. And all who don't place their faith in the Lord Jesus will be condemned. You see, Jesus will return, and He will judge His enemies. Friends, there's nothing more that I want for you but that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and not as your judge. Believe in Him. Trust in him. Know that he is the son of God who became man, who died for sins and resurrected from the grave. He extends mercy. All who trust in him will be forgiven of their sins and they will have salvation. I will implore you this very day to trust in Jesus. If you want to talk more, you can talk to any members after service. This is one of the conversations they would love to have with you about the gospel, about following the Lord Jesus. Y'all look at verses 7 and 8. It says, A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You see, this is the climax of the transfiguration, where God the Father appeared through the cloud. You see, this cloud represents God's presence and his glory. And he enveloped them just as the cloud covered the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And here we see God speak. Just like at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks at the transfiguration. But here he speaks to the disciples concerning the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son. You see, this alludes to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And here the Father declares to the disciples that Jesus is his Son. He is the Son who was with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the beloved Son whom the Father has always loved. But not only does he declare Jesus' relationship to the Father, he commands the disciples to listen to Jesus Did you see it? He says, listen to him. This alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, which is part of our scripture reading this morning, where Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like himself from his people and for his people. 
You see, they were to listen to Jesus. You see, that prophecy was ultimately about Jesus. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God spoke to his people through the prophets, and Jesus is the final prophet. He brings God's word to God's people. He fulfills the prophetic ministry. But, beloved, he is much more than a prophet, seeing that he is the son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 will say it this way. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. It says this about the Son, that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, Jesus is the Son, and we should listen to him. Now, specifically, when the Father says, listen to him, he is referring to Jesus' prediction of his own humiliation and exaltation and his demands for discipleship that we learned in the previous section. And I say this because this is one of the things that Jesus repeats to his disciples as they are on their way to Jerusalem. Three times he tells them that he will suffer, die, and resurrect from the grave. A couple of times he tells them the cost of discipleship. And those who follow him, that they will lose their very own lives, but that it will be worth it. You guys remember last week? Peter couldn't handle the prediction. Now here, God the Father is telling them to not reject or oppose what the Son says, but to accept it and obey it. You see, what Jesus predicted is from God and a part of God's will. You see, just as an army stands at attention for the sergeant's next command, they were to open their ears and give Jesus' words their undivided attention. He says, listen to him. And if we don't, God will hold us accountable. You see, beloved, are your ears to the Son? Are you listening to him through his word? Does Jesus have your ear? Not just in the things that we like, but in all things. We are to listen to him. Beloved, are you listening to him? Or are you only talking to him? You see, we should certainly talk to the son, but that shouldn't be our only interaction with the son. I'm not saying that we should pray less, but that we should be in the word more, hearing and heeding what the son says. You see, to listen to the son doesn't mean that his words go in one ear and out the other, but it means to hear him and obey him. Beloved, are you listening to the Son? Our obedience to Him is the evidence that we are listening to Him. You see, and I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Neighbor, are you listening to the Son? I'm, I'm glad y'all did that. <laughs> now, as awkward as that may be, in all honesty, beloved, this should be the kind of question that we ask one another regularly. Are you listening to the Son? And not only are you listening to Him, but to whom are you encouraging others to listen to? Is your encouragement, counsel, and exhortation more from the Word of God, or is it from the Word of man? 
Do you encourage church members to listen to the Son or to someone else? You see, this would be something worth discussing after service with each other. To whom are we encouraging one another to listen? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? Now let me address the children and teens in here. Y'all, there are a number of people that you should listen to. Your parents, your teachers, your dentist. <laughs> For real though, your dentist. <laughs> your parents, pastors, the police. You see, listening to them is for your good. And there's one you should listen to all the more, and that's Jesus. You see, his words are the words of life. You should start by listening to what he says about himself, that he is God who became man to save sinners, that he died and resurrected from the grave, and if you believe these truths and place your trust in Jesus, the Bible will say that you will be saved. On your way home, I would encourage you to ask your parents about the importance of listening to Jesus. Look at verse 8. It says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus. You see, here, the Father makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the Son. Both Moses and Elijah vanished like magicians, but Jesus didn't. And how come Jesus didn't? Well, it's because he is the beloved Son. He is greater than Moses and Elijah and all of the prophets. He is the Son to whom we should listen. You see, at the transfiguration, the glory that the disciples witnessed, it didn't last long, and it wasn't intended to. You see, it was a temporary manifestation of the glory that Jesus would return in. And when Jesus returns, he will consummate his kingdom, and that glory would fill the whole earth. Creation will be transformed, and all who trust in him will appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 3 makes this known. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, this is what we are awaiting Jesus' imminent return, when he consummates his kingdom, he will do away with sin and he will make all things new. Because God has graciously saved us, we will be with Christ having glorified bodies. Beloved, that day is as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and it is more certain than our next breath. You see, this preview of Jesus' glory should lead us to yearn for his return. If the consummation of his kingdom is what is to come, that should be the very thing that we await. Are you awaiting Christ's imminent return? Are you yearning for this day? What's your attitude for the day of Christ's return? Are you excited? 
Or are you indifferent? Do you even think about it? Are you more excited about future events on this earth than you are about the imminent return of our glorious King? You see, big days like birthdays, weddings, the birth of one's child or grandchild, they are sweet and they are great and I love it, but they cannot compare with how glorious it will be when Christ returns. So, beloved, may our hope be in that and may we long for his imminent return. May we hasten the day, anticipate it, because he himself said that he will return. And so, beloved, may we anticipate that day with great joy. But as we anticipate that day, may we also anticipate suffering for Christ. And that's our next point. We are to anticipate suffering for Christ. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You see, Jesus commanded their silence for the time being. They witnessed such a glorious sight. And they were probably ready to do the very same thing that we would do. Tell everybody. You see, they were already brainstorming their Instagram post. They came up with hashtag transfiguration. They were ready to tweet about seeing Moses and Elijah. But Jesus comes and busts their bubble. He commands their silence. No talking about it, no tweeting about it. Their experience was to be temporarily concealed until Jesus resurrected from the dead. Look at verse 10. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. You see, they were perplexed about the Son of Man rising from the dead. This was also implied his suffering. They were confused because Jesus isn't the type of Messiah that they assumed. You see, they didn't get it. They're ready for Rome to be overthrown and for his kingdom to be consummated. You see, they think that their primary problem is that Caesar is reigning. But their primary problem isn't that Caesar is reigning. The primary problem is that sin is reigning. You see, Jesus didn't come to deal with Caesar, but to deal with sin. And Jesus came to deliver us from sin's rule and reign, its penalty and power, and bring us into his kingdom. This is the very reason why God sent the Son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. And how will Jesus do it? Well, it is through his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. You see, he came to serve by giving his life as a ransom. See, he must first defeat Satan, sin, and death. This is why the Son of Man must first suffer, die, and resurrect from the grave. You see, his suffering is for our salvation. His humiliation is necessary because through it, he brings restoration. And one day he will return and destroy all of his enemies and consummate his kingdom. You see, beloved, the proper way to grasp Jesus' person and work is by understanding his death and resurrection. You see, the disciples didn't get it. And though confused, 
they obeyed Jesus' command. Look at verse 11. It says, then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, they got questions. And this question is a roundabout way, in a roundabout way, they are asking about the resurrection of the Son of Man. I say this, I want you all to track with me real quick. You see, first they ask about the scribes. And the scribes taught that Elijah must come first. And then the Lord will come and consummate his kingdom. This is referring to Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, where it says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with the curse. You see, this passage may be on the minds of the disciples, especially since they witnessed Jesus' glory. They just saw Moses and Elijah, the very two people that are mentioned in Malachi chapter 4. You see, in their minds, the day of the Lord is coming next. Peep the order of the prophecy. Elijah comes and restores all things. Then the Lord comes. That prophecy says nothing about the Son of Man suffering and rising from the dead. And in their minds, they're like, we just saw Elijah, so now we await the glorious return of the Lord. If that is what's next, then there's no need for the Son of Man to suffer and die. This is likely their logic, because they don't understand the necessity of the Son of Man rising from the dead. Look at verse 12 and 13. It says, Elijah, Elijah does come first and restores all things. He replied, just then it is written. No, not just then. Why then is it written? that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And so here, Jesus, he affirms the scribes' teaching about Elijah. And Elijah does come, and he brings restoration through his preaching. People hear his message, and they respond with repentance. Jesus makes known that Elijah has come. And here he's referring to John the Baptist. And Matthew's gospel makes that abundantly clear. You see, John the Baptist, he came and he fulfills the role of Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah and he was to prepare the way for the Lord. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John the Baptist, he came in the spirit of Elijah. He wore the same outfit that Elijah wore, camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. He ate the very same food that Elijah ate, locusts and wild honey. You see, John the Baptist, he preached the message of repentance and by God's grace, people repented of their sins. And Jesus is making known here that the coming of Elijah is not the only thing that must happen before the glorious coming of the Lord. You see, the scribes may teach that Elijah's come, the scribes may teach about Elijah's coming, but Scripture also prophesies about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. You see, that one must suffer and die for sins before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
You see, this prophecy, Isaiah 53, may not be as popular as Malachi 4, but it's not less important. You see, this prophecy is essential. Just as the coming of Elijah must be fulfilled, so too the suffering of the Son of Man. You see, the the Son of Man must suffer for our sins. His death for our sins ransoms us and reconciles us to God. Such work is necessary for our salvation, and it precedes Jesus' exaltation. You see, here Jesus is teaching that his suffering precedes glory. We can't have the glorious consummation without first his humiliation. They are inextricably linked together, like labor pains to childbirth. You cannot have one without the other. Scripture affirms Jesus' humiliation precedes his exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, talks about though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus' humiliation precedes his exaltation. What comes after is proclamation of what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. And then when he returns, there will be consummation of his glorious kingdom. You see, Jesus, he tells them that Elijah has come. And he goes on to make known how they responded to Elijah. You see, just as the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament was rejected by King Ahab and Jezebel and how she tried to kill him, so too was John the Baptist rejected. He was put to death at the hands of King Herod and his wife, Herodias as we saw in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. You see, John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit of Elijah, he suffered. He says that it is written that the Son of Man must first suffer. And beloved, if our Lord and Savior suffered, then we too will suffer as we follow him. He made it clear in chapter 8, that following him will inevitably result in persecution. We share his sufferings. As we follow Jesus, the destination of glory with Jesus comes through the road of suffering for Jesus. If we're going to appear in glory with him, we must share in his sufferings. Scripture speaks to this truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Beloved, if our Lord and Savior experienced humiliation and persecution, what makes us think that we as his followers will be exempt from such persecution? 
You see, as his followers, we are to anticipate suffering for Christ. You will lose friends because they hate Jesus. Family may disown you. Neighbors may despise you. You may lose your job. We may even lose our lives. You see, suffering for following Jesus should not surprise us. We shouldn't be shocked as if, something, as if we're doing something wrong. You see, being persecuted for following Jesus isn't strange. But what's strange is if you're unashamedly following Jesus and you're never persecuted. That is strange. If they persecuted him, then they will persecute us as we follow him. Beloved, we will suffer for following Jesus. We should anticipate it. But we must look beyond the suffering and anticipate the glory that awaits. You see, growing up in a black church, they used to make this common phrase, say it to one another, that trouble don't last always. Beloved, trouble don't last always, but glory with Christ does. You see, the, remainder, the reminder of glory that awaits, it should keep us going. It places our sufferings for Christ in his pop, proper place. And it causes us to lift our eyes above the present situation. It empowers us to endure. So may we anticipate suffering for the Lord Jesus. Now skip with me from my freshman year of track to my senior year. We had just qualified for the state track meet in the 1,600-meter relay. And we had two weeks until state. And those were the hardest practices of my life. Y'all, every day we were throwing up our lunch. We were laid out on the track. And we just kept reminding one another that the glory of winning state is worth enduring the suffering of these difficult practices. And when state came, y'all, we ran our fastest time that season. We won state. We celebrated. All the suffering that we endured, it was worth the glory of winning that first place. Y'all, we went through all of that for a medal that no one will remember. I don't even look at it anymore. I don't even know where it's at. For real. Temporal glory that lasted for a moment. How much more will suffering for Jesus be worth the eternal glory that we will have with him when he returns? You see, when suffering, we must look past our situations and fix our eyes upon the glory that is to come. We must remind one another that glory awaits. You see, in track, there was no certainty that we would win. The pain was only worth it because we won. But in the Christian life, there is great certainty that Christ will return and that his glory will transcend the whole earth. There is certainty for us because Jesus purchased us with his very own blood and that he promises to return and consummate his kingdom. You see, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be glorified with him. Y'all, glory is coming. All who endure to the end will be saved. We will reign with him in glory. And seeing that we will suffer for Christ as we await glory with Christ.
in light of that truth, I would encourage us to hide verses in our heart and meditate on verses that talks about the glory that awaits. Because the Lord can use them to fuel our endurance in our suffering. We should be reminding one another of these truths, that Jesus is coming soon. On your own time, I would highly encourage you to read Revelation chapter 22. Three times in this chapter, the Lord Jesus says, I am coming soon. Beloved, he is coming soon in the glory of his Father. You see, in this life, we should anticipate suffering for Jesus as we await glory with Jesus. We must remember that the former only lasts but for a moment, but the latter lasts for eternity. May we remind one another. May we persevere. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your kindness and sending your Son, that he has ransomed us with his very own blood, that you have brought us into his kingdom, that he currently reigns now, as he reigns on in our hearts, and one day he will return and destroy all of his enemies. Father, do pray that we will fix our eyes upon that day, that we will not be distracted, that we will await and long for Jesus' return. We pray, we praise that it is certain that he will one day return and consummate his kingdom, that we get to see the one, the glorious one who loved us and gave himself up for us. We pray that he would come soon. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.